your copy of God's Word with you this morning. If you don't have one, there should be one uh, under the seat in front of you or nearby. And open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, uh, verses, we'll be in verses 24 through 30, <clears throat> and then 36 through 43 uh, this morning as we continue in uh, what is the third major speaking or teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, some call it the parabolic discourse um, because it's all full of parables. So there we have it. We're looking today at the parable of the weeds. Uh, just by way of plug for next week for Resurrection Sunday, um, next week we are going to be in Luke chapter 24, uh, looking at the resurrection of Christ in a sermon that I have titled, Good Reason to Believe. Not that we who trust Christ need any better reason to believe, but there is good reason for the belief that we have. We, we do not rest our hope in Christ upon some sort of silly myth. Uh, or, or, or fairy tale or bedtime kind of story. We, we base it in historical fact and biblical truth, and we're going to be looking at that next week. So I invite you to come uh, and, and to do so enthusiastically. Bring your friends, family, neighbor, neighbors, those that may need to hear the gospel. Uh, sometimes Christmas and Easter are, are just those times where people are more likely to, to go to church with someone who invites them. So take advantage of that opportunity next Sunday. The parable of the weeds, as we'll see today, is undeniably a parable about judgment. It's a parable about judgment. It's a picture of the realities of heaven and hell and the coming day when each of us will stand before a holy, perfect God to give account for our lives. But this idea of judgment that we'll look at in Matthew 13 in the parable of the weeds in our 21st century Western cultural context is, is an idea that we absolutely detest. We don't like to talk about judgment. We like to talk about people telling us, evaluating whether we are right or wrong, especially if we are wrong. In fact, to tell a man that he is wrong, even if he's in danger for being wrong, is not perceived as virtuous in the society. It's not perceived as doing someone a, a helpful thing to tell them that they are dangerously wrong in what they're thinking or in what they're doing, at least not by most people. And very often it's this fear of being seen as hateful or being seen as mean or judgmental or whatever word you want to put in there that, that we as Christians so often keep ourselves from sharing the gospel, from sharing the good news of Jesus. I don't want to seem judgmental. I want people to think I'm hateful Maybe you've even been accused of being those things for graciously sharing the gospel with people. The gospel is the good news of how anyone may escape God's judgment and receive instead on the day of judgment his favor. Not his wrath, but his favor. The gospel is the good news of how to receive that by trusting in Christ, the Son of God who died on the cross in our place and was raised from the dead. But we live in a culture that, that doesn't see speaking truth that way, even, even if lovingly, even if graciously. Don't see it as a virtue. But one has, a comedian and illusionist Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller, who is himself an avowed atheist, was uh, several years ago approached after one of his shows by a, a fan of his who happened to be a Christian, happened to be a believer. This man caught Penn after the show and spoke with him a little bit, gave him a copy of the Bible, and shared the gospel with him briefly. Now, after that interaction, Penn Gillette did not walk away a believer that night. He's not a believer today, um, uh, wasn't coming close to belief in Christ that night. But 
he, he was moved by his interaction with this Christian man. And so he took to the Internet, to YouTube, and you can go and find this video if you'd like, to record a statement of, of how moved he was by this Christian man and his proclamation, his declaration of the gospel to Penn. There in that statement, Penn Gillette says, in part, he says, I've always said that I don't respect people uh, who don't proselytize. That is to say, I don't respect people who, who don't evangelize, who don't share the gospel if they believe it. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, well, how much then do you have to hate somebody not to share the gospel? And this from an avowed atheist, from someone who doesn't believe in God, from someone who doesn't trust Christ, from someone who thinks it is utter foolishness to believe in Jesus. He says, look, if you really believe the gospel, you really believe the truth that, that what the Bible says is true. How much do you have? Not just, ha- <laughs> not just how, how moved by God's love ought you to be, but he said, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them, not to tell them? The parable of the weeds that we'll see today, is a, it's a hard parable because it declares truth about the realities of heaven and hell. It says things that are true about heaven and hell and judgment. It simultaneously warns those who do not believe that Jesus is Lord and encourages those who do. It's a warning and an encouragement. This parable, while it's hard to hear, is not spoken by Christ out of God's hate for people. Quite the opposite. This parable about the realities of heaven and hell and judgment are given by Christ because of his great love for us. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and then we'll jump to 36 through 43. There Matthew, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, He put another parable before them, that is Jesus, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While his men were sleeping... His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. In verse 36, then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. This is most likely Peter's house there at Capernaum. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are, are, are angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, Jesus says, let him hear. And God had blessing to the reading of his word. Well, let's look at this parable together. First, let's look at verses 24 through 30, where the parable of the weeds is given, where Jesus just tells this story. Now, this is the first of the kingdom parables in Matthew. 
Now, the the parable of the sower was a sort of kingdom parable as well. But here explicitly, Jesus introduces the parable in verse 24 by saying this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. There are going to be several other parables in the rest of Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. In fact, Jesus refers to the kingdom several times all throughout Matthew, not just in his parables, but in other places as well. In Matthew chapter 3 and in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, there Matthew records from John the Baptist in Matthew 3 and Jesus in Matthew 4, both of them together in their ministry saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 23 and 9, 35, there uh, the gospel writer Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry by saying that he taught in their synagogues and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and healed every disease and every affliction. So there's kingdom parables, there's kingdom talk, there's proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom all throughout Matthew. So then what is the kingdom? When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, when we talk about the kingdom of God, just generally the kingdom in a gospel context, what are we talking about? One scholar, Craig Blomberg, said that the kingdom of heaven is God's kingship. It refers primarily to God's rule or reign rather than to a geographical realm. That is, it is a power more than it is a place. God's kingdom is a power more than it is a place. Uh, Former pastor, now president of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, whom our offerings at the uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering go to support uh, the president there, David Platt, defines the kingdom of heaven simply as this. The redemptive rule or reign of God is... In Christ, the redemptive rule or reign of God in Christ. So then when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like or he refers to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in other places in Matthew, what we're hearing, what we're reading from Jesus is an explanation or an illustration, a word picture of some aspect of God's rule of the universe as he rescues sinners through the work of his appointed king, who is his son, Jesus The kingdom parables that we'll see here in Matthew chapter 13 are gospel pictures. Okay, The kingdom parables are gospel pictures. They are images of God's salvation that is effected and given through his son, Jesus. That's the kingdom of heaven. I wish I could define it more plainly than that. The kingdom is at the same time both here and now and also yet to be. The kingdom is present Right, Because the king has come, he's instituted his kingdom, but the kingdom is yet to come. There is a future aspect of the kingdom, as we will see in the parable of the weeds and in other parables as we go throughout Matthew 13. That is to say, it is already and it is not yet. So then let's look at this first of the kingdom parables, this first of the gospel pictures uh, uh, about what God is doing uh, in his redemptive rule and reign of the universe. Here in this parable, Jesus uses, again, another agricultural analogy for what the kingdom looks like. Just like in verses 3 through 9, where he told the parable of the sower who's throwing seed and some falls on all different kinds of soil. So again, he employs another sort of sowing uh, uh, sort of analogy. A man goes out to sow good seed in his field. And of course, he goes out to sow good seed. He wouldn't be a very good farmer if he sowed bad seed, right? So when you go to Home Depot to buy tomato seeds for your tomato plants for to grow this summer, you are hoping that or, or trusting that whatever's in that little packet of seeds are good seeds that will germinate, that will grow. 
You don't pay good money for bad seeds, right? So it was 2,000 years ago, a man who's sowing seed in his field doesn't sow seed that he knows he's bad. He saves the best of the seed from the year before and uses it to sow the next year. He's sowing good seeds. But during the night, after he's sowed in the field, an enemy comes and sows weeds among the field, sows seed, weed seeds among the field. And not just a few here and there. That, that word among means like in and all throughout. There's weed seeds sown all throughout this field. Now the weed that are sown by the enemy are, are called in Greek zizania. It's a kind of grass called darnel. It's a, a sort of rye grass that in its, in, in its initial stages is almost indistinguishable from wheat. It grows up grassy like wheat does. And, and, and you don't know that you have darnel in your field until the wheat and the darnel have grown up together and produced heads. Only then can you notice that, that there is uh, weeds among the wheat. Darnell is a particularly pernicious sort of weed, and its, its seeds are, are black. The kernels that grow in the, in the head of the grain are, are, are black, not that golden kind of brown that grow in wheat. And they also uh, play host to a very poisonous sort of fungi that can make individuals sick if they eat them and can poison other crops. These weeds, though initially invisible, as the entire crop matures, become clearly noted. Right? The servants go out and say, Master, didn't you sow good seed? There's weeds all over this. What should we do? Should we pull them all up? And the master says to the servants, No, don't pull them all up, because if you pull up the weeds, the roots that have grown up uh, and into the wheat at the same time in the ground, if you pull the weeds up, they're going to pull the wheat up with it. Right? So you'll ruin the whole harvest. So wait until everything grows and is mature. And at the time of harvest, we'll cut it all down and we'll separate it at the harvest time. The weeds will go in the furnace to be burned because we don't want to keep any of those seeds around for next year to infest the next year's crop. And the wheat, the good stuff, will be kept and we'll put it in the barn uh, to use for making bread and other things later. That's the parable of the weeds as Jesus gives it in the general flow of it. But then in verses 36 through 40, Jesus goes into the house, into Peter's house with just the disciples. And they ask, please explain the parable to us. And so there in verses 36 through 40, Jesus both explains and applies the parable. First thing he does in explaining and applying the parable is that he interprets the elements of the parable for the disciples. He tells them what what each of the various things that he intended in the story to represent uh, what they actually represent. So we get this. First, the sower is the son of man. The son of man, as we've seen before uh, in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is this messianic title that Jesus uses of himself. He first uses it in Matthew 8, 8, chapter 20, and then he uses it again here. That is to say, the son son of man is the Messiah. He's the promised one who's going to rescue Israel. The field, he tells us, is the world. Also referred to as the kingdom of God in verse 41. The field is the world, but as we see in verse 24, it is his field. It is the field that belongs to the Son of Man. It is is the the region, the the area of his redemptive rule and reign. The world and everything in it is the Lord's. It all belongs to him. His kingdom rule is universal. The field is the world, and it is the Lord's. The good seed, Jesus says, are the sons of the kingdom. These are those who are born out of God's redemptive work in the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These are the ones who, as Peter says in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 9, those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the good seed. What about the weeds? 
The weeds are the sons of evil, the sons of the evil one. These are those who are not the product of God's redemptive work in their lives, but these are the ones who are the product of the deceitfulness and cunning of the devil. These are those who are opposed to the work of God. This morning, Christian, think not too highly of yourself in this parable. Remember, as you reflect upon what we will see is the fate of the weeds and of the wheat, that you too, I too, apart from the transformative grace of God in your life and in mine, we are weeds. You're not born wheat. You are not born saved. You are born a dirty, rotten sinner in need of a savior. Think not too highly of yourself. As we look at this parable, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, there Paul reminds us, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are not by nature children of grace. We are by nature children of wrath because our hearts are from the moment of birth turned against God. Our hearts only lead us into sin. Our hearts only lead us to rebel against God and only by his divine supernatural work in your heart, in my heart, can we see our sin for what it is, for how dangerous it is and desire to want the things of God, desire to be holy and turn to Christ to make us so. The weeds are the sons of evil, sons of the evil one, among whom we all once were at one time. The enemy, then, Jesus says, is the devil. It's pretty straightforward, but just by way of reminder, see that the intent and the work of Satan in the world is to undermine the work of God in the world. The son of man sows good seed. And what does the devil do? Sow bad seed. Seed that grows up initially looking like the same sort of thing, but in maturity it's seen to be actually something quite different, something even poisonous. The devil is an enemy of God. Satan is the enemy of God, the chief enemy of God. And his will is to scandalize and to sabotage the work of God in redeeming sinful man. He wants to do anything and everything to to keep God's redemptive work from moving forward in the world. Satan Whose, whose name literally means the accuser, also called the devil, is repeatedly called a deceiver throughout the New Testament. All over the New Testament, he's called a deceiver. He stands to deceive any who will listen to him that they might not believe God about the truth of his holiness. The devil stands to deceive people to convince us to not believe the seriousness of our own sin. He wants to deceive us that we might not believe God about our need for a savior who is Jesus. So then is it any wonder that Jesus uses the image of this wheat like weed to refer to the fruit of the devil here, right? Even the devil's produce, even the product that he, that he uh, puts forward in the world is deceptive. We've seen the, the, the caution against false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Already in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, the importance of, of understanding the gospel rightly, not wrongly, uh, throughout the course of Matthew. The importance of seeing that you are either with Jesus or you are against him in Matthew. And so don't be deceived by the devil. Don't be deceived by Satan that there is any other way to be right with God. If you are deceived, it's, Satan has already won. He is winning in your life. There's a warning here not to listen to those 
messages that the devil would have you hear. So the good seed of the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, the enemy is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. This is actually pretty standard imagery for a day of judgment in Scripture in the Old Testament, and we can see why, right? The harvest is the last bit of work to be done in growing a crop. I'm not a farmer, nor am I a gardener. Um, I, can, I can barely grow mold in the bathroom. But good farmers work hard. They wake up early in the morning at like 4.30 in the morning. Right, Joe? Yeah, Joe grew up on a farm. So he's been waking up uh, at 4.30 in the morning since before he was born. Um, God bless you, brother. Uh, the farmers, right? Gardeners, others, they wake up early. They work hard all summer long for the harvest. And harvest is not easy work. Harvest is hard work, right? But all that work at harvest at the end, right? That's the culmination of all the work that's been put into growing a crop over those summer months. And so on the day of harvest, the fruit of the farmer's labor and the, uh, and, and the product of the soil and the input of the water and the sun are all seen on the day of harvest. For the farmer, for the gardener, harvest day can be a day of great joy or one of great lament, depending upon the fruitfulness of his crop. And so the day of God's final judgment will also be like a harvest, one of great joy for some and one of great mourning for others. Finally, last bit, uh, last piece of, of, of symbolism in Jesus' parable, the reapers. He says the reapers are the angels. Now, regularly throughout Scripture, again, angels are depicted as God's servants and his messengers. In fact, the Greek word for angel is angelos, which just means messenger. These are those supernatural beings created by God who do his will. They serve the Lord. In Genesis 19, God sends angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In Numbers 22, the Lord sends an angel to confront the pagan prophet Balaam. And his talking donkey. In Matthew and Luke, we see an angel of the Lord, who's Gabriel by name, give good news to Mary and Elizabeth about the sons that they'll carry in their wombs. Throughout Matthew, too, as we'll continue to see over weeks and months, angels are regularly mentioned alongside the Son of Man, especially as Jesus speaks prophetically about the end times speaks prophetically about his second coming. Angels are often seen coming with Jesus to do his bidding, to serve him at his command. And they are those who, at the end of the age, serve as the reapers here in Jesus' parable. So Jesus explains the elements of the parable. Now we know what all he's talking about. And then in verses 40 and 40, 40 through 43, Jesus gives us the point of the parable. This is the takeaway. This is why he's telling the parable. There are two points I think to his parable primarily. <clears throat> First, unbelievers, that is sons of evil, will be punished. Unbelievers will be punished. <clears throat> Look at verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned. This is how we know this is the point of the parable. Jesus is bringing it to a, to a close here. He's saying this is, this is the purpose. Here's what everything represents. Now here's why I told it. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so also it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, with regard to the punishment of the unbelievers, there is a when, there is a why, and there is a how. Okay? When? When will the punishment of unbelievers happen? Well, in the future. 
The punishment happens at a time of harvest in the parable, right? The time of harvest is not during the time of sowing or during the time of growing. It's at the end. So it is a time that is not yet. It is still in the future. As Jesus says in verse 40, it will happen at the close of the age. Now that word age refers to a, a period or an, or an epoch of human history. Jesus is saying that the day of judgment is a day that will close, that will end the period of human history that we have been living in since Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. It is a period wherein God is working out the full effects of his redemption in and through Jesus. We live in a time of God's grace where he is affecting his, his rescue plan to rescue us from the results, from the effects of our sin, which is death and separation from him. We live in a time of God's grace, time of growing in the heart, uh, time of growing amongst the crop, right? But eventually that time will end. The fact that there is a close of this age tells us that there will be a time when God's patience with sinners comes to an end. And his just and deserved punishment for our sins will be poured out in full. Harvest is coming. The day of judgment is coming. But that day, mercifully, friends, is not yet. So when will unbelievers be punished? In the future. Why? For their sin. Look at verse 41. Jesus says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. The original language here says uh, he will gather out of the world all stumbling blocks and doers of lawlessness. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 makes it clear that the kingdom of heaven cannot be, will not be a permanent home for sinful people. For sinful people who rebel against the goodness of God. There in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 and following, Paul says this to the church at Corinth. Do you not know that the righteous, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And as Romans chapter 6 verse 23 reminds us again, the wages of sin is death. What we earn for our sin is death. Why does God bring judgment upon unbelievers? Because they are still in their sin. They're still in their rebellion against the rightful king of the universe. So when will he punish unbelievers? In the future. Why for their sin? How? In unimaginable torment. Verse 42. Throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not the only time that Jesus uses this imagery of weeping and gnashing and teeth. He, he does it also at the end of, towards the end of Matthew chapter 13. In verse 50, there again, he says, you will throw them into the furnace and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another parable there of sorting, not grain and wheat, but, but different kinds of, of fish as we'll see in a few weeks. Then on that day, that day in the future, The unjust and the unrighteous, those who are not trusting Jesus, those who do not know the Savior, will be thrown into what Jesus calls the fiery furnace, where there will be much lament, much sobbing, much weeping, and anguish, gnashing of teeth. The warning here in this verse is to those who are unbelievers, those who are still, as the Bible calls them, sons of evil. They will be delivered unto eternal torment in a literal hell. The image of the fiery furnace here is borrowed by Jesus from Daniel chapter 3 verse 6. 
But here in this place, the fiery furnace is not the destination of those who fail to worship the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, this fiery furnace is an eternal destiny for those who openly refuse and continue to reject the sovereign God of the universe and his grace to us in Jesus Christ. Is hell a literal place of fire and torment like this? Are there literal flames of fire in hell? Many scholars are in debate about this, but certainly one thing is clear. Whether hell is a place of literal fire or Jesus is utilizing the most extreme imagery that human beings can fathom, the point is this. An eternity separated from the God who created you to know, love, and worship him is an eternity of unimaginable torment. Hear the warning of of walking in, in unrepentant rejection of Christ. Two points to the parable. Unbelievers will be punished. But secondly, believers, sons of God, will be rewarded. I said as we started the sermon this morning that, that the, this parable has, is, is like a two-edged sword. It, has a, uh, it, has, it is, it is one, one parable with, with that, that works in two different ways. It warns and it also encourages. So believers, sons of God, you who are trusting in Jesus this morning... As you look forward to the reward, he, be encouraged by this parable today. And just as there was for the unbeliever a, a when, a why, and a how for their punishment, there is also a when, a why, and a how for the reward that believers, that Christians, that followers of Jesus will receive on the day of judgment. Just like the unbelievers, the when of their reward is yet in the future. The day of judgment, which is yet to come, is yet to come for the believer as well. Christian, you have not received the full reward for your faithful walk with Jesus yet. Verse 43, and the reward for the believer is a day that we have not yet seen as of April, April 9th, 2017. As of today, the day of judgment is still on the horizon of time. So it is still out there. We are still waiting for it. That's the when, but what about the why? Why will believers be rewarded? Well, as verse 43 tells us, for their faith. Verse 43 refers to those who are being rewarded as the righteous. But who are the righteous? How are the righteous made? Righteous. The righteous are those who have faith in God and his promises fulfilled in Jesus. You don't believe me? That's okay. I'll try to convince you. (laughs) Righteousness has always been by faith, by trusting in God throughout all of Scripture. Throughout all of Scripture. There's never been a way to be right with God on your own, in and of yourself, by the things that you can do with your own hands, with your own actions. Right? Uh, righteousness, being in a right relationship with it, being reconciled to the God who has created you, only comes by faith, by trust in His promises. All of His promises, which are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Let's take a quick survey of the Bible. Genesis fifteen six. There, God institutes, reinstitutes His covenant with Abraham. Right, that he would make Abraham great and bless the, all the nations of the world through Abraham's offspring. And what is Abraham's response to God? Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed the Lord. And he, and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. How is Abraham made righteous with the Lord? By believing him. By believing him. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the prophet Habakkuk says, inspired by God, the righteous shall live by faith. A verse that is cited verbatim in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11 by the Apostle Paul in both places. And then by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38. How shall we live? By faith. In faith. Through faith. 
In Galatians 2.20, there Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And this is not of yourselves, not by works, so that no man can boast. How are you made righteous with God? How are you made right with a holy God, even though you have sin in your life? By faith. By faith in Christ, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, as Paul says. Are you trusting Jesus this way? Do you have faith in Jesus this way? Have you been made right with God this way by trusting Christ? Or are you relying upon your works? Are you relying upon your church attendance? Are you relying upon your good works in the world? Are you relying upon your generosity, your compassion for the needy? What are you trusting to be right with God? Scripture tells us you are either trusting Christ or you are not right with God at all. So, friend, if you're not trusting Jesus today, if you're not walking with Jesus today, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Just hear that and know that and understand that today, that there's no way to be right with God apart from trusting Jesus. So believers will be rewarded in the future for their faith. How? In undeserved glory. In undeserved glory. Now, this point, I think, is fairly simple. In verse 43, we read, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. There on that day, in the day of judgment, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, Jesus says. See then here in this verse, the stark contrast to the fate of the unbeliever. Fiery furnace on the one hand, shining like the sun in the glory of God on the other. Unimaginable torment on the one hand, unfathomable glory on the other. Is there any middle ground there at all? No, there's none. There's none. We want middle ground. We in our sinful hearts want middle ground because we know that what we deserve is hell. What we don't deserve is heaven, but we don't want to admit that we need Christ the way that scripture says we need Christ. And so we want some sort of middle ground. Give me some sort of purgatory, God. I'll take the gray area. He doesn't offer that though, right? As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, you're either with me or you are against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. There's there's no room for indifference on Jesus. And And for the same reason that there's no room for indifference on Jesus, there's also no room for a middle ground in eternity. There's no, there's no way to escape torment, but by faith in Christ. And there's no way to be rewarded by God, but by faith in Christ. The glory that the believer receives from God on the day of judgment, wonderfully, is not his own. The glory we receive on the day of judgment, the glory that we are rewarded with in eternity, in heaven, is not our own glory. It's the glory that we receive from the Father that he is pleased to give to us. We each on our own, friends, deserve death and punishment. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. We're all weeds until God in his grace transforms our hearts to hate our sin and to love his son. Do you hate your sin and love his son? The reward for the believer, the reward that the believer receives in eternity is unfathomable. Yes, but it's all the more undeserved. You don't deserve it. And that's what makes it so beautiful. 
that God is pleased to give you something that you have not earned. That God is pleased to give you something far greater than anything you could even attempt to earn. God is pleased to reward you by showering his glory upon you for ages upon ages for eternity because of his love for us expressed in the death of his son on the cross in our place. The glory we receive in eternity is undeserved, but it is unfathomable at the same time. The reward the believer receives in eternity is, is a gift, is a wondrous gift. Gifts are not things that we earn. Gifts are things that are given and received. That's the point of the parable. Unbelievers will be punished. Believers will be rewarded. And there's a judgment that sifts the two. It's the point of the parable. And if you're having a hard time receiving the point of the parable, you're, I don't think you're having a hard time with me. I think you're having a hard time with Jesus. Lord willing, I've spoken about the text clearly this morning. This is what Jesus says. He doesn't leave any middle ground even for his disciples and how they understand him. So that's the main question I have for you. Do you know Christ this way? Are you trusting Christ this way? Believer, if you are, praise God and rejoice. Be encouraged by the reward that awaits you. Unbeliever, you've been warned by the word of God this morning about what awaits you if you continue to walk in disobedience to God. If you continue to walk in faithlessness, if you continue to trust your, your good works or your church attendance or your charitable giving, to save you. There's one remaining question though. I think. <clears throat> from this parable. And is that. What do we do then. With the question of the servants. To the master. About pulling the weeds. And of his answer to them. Right. The, the weeds grow up in the field. The servants see that. There in the parable. And they say. Master you planted good seed. But there's bad seed. There's, there's weeds growing. Should we pull them up? This question. By the servants. In the parable that Jesus tells. Admittedly, it tempts me to make too much out of this parable. I am tempted to take this question that the servants ask and make more of it than I ought. But this question, I think, is significant and meaningful in the context of the parable because it points to a question that I think a lot of believers ask at some time in their life. That many people who are trusting Jesus, if they're honest with themselves, have to ask. It is this, why, God, why, after sending Christ to die for sins... To defeat sin and death, why do you continue to allow evil and evil people to remain in the world? God, why don't you just take all the evil out of the world? Just fix it already. Just pull up the weeds. What's the point in letting it go on this way, God? I mean, for two reasons. First, God is patient. God is patient. Not all who will be saved in this age have been saved yet. Not everyone who God intends and who God knows will trust in Christ have yet trusted in Christ for salvation. And for God to remove all evil from the world would intend that his redemptive plan was complete. That every tribe, nation, and tongue has had the gospel preached to them and every person who will be saved has been saved. That's, that's what the day of judgment is and that's why it comes because God's redemptive plan is complete. So the fact that it has not come yet intends or, or, or implies that God is not yet done saving people. And for that, we ought to all say, Amen. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 7-9. through nine. Apostle Peter writes this. By the same word, the heavens, he's speaking now about the day of judgment. The same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years <clears throat> as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but, but that all should reach repentance. Why has God not yet uprooted the weeds out of this world? Because he's patient. Because he is working in the hearts of those who are weeds to transform them into those who are wheat. To change their, their hearts, to see their need for Christ and to express faith and trust in him to be saved. God is patient. But secondly, Christian, God is working. God is working. God isn't through. He's not done maturing believers yet. Christian, when you ask why God has not yet removed evil and suffering from the world, remind yourself of the fact that time is needed to grow and mature in your faith and in your Christ-likeness. Growth in faith and Christ-likeness doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen immediately. The moment you trust in Christ for salvation, you're not immediately mature in your faith. It takes time. And God often uses, as he tells us several places in Scripture, he uses the hardship, the suffering of this world, even the evil in this world, to shape and to grow and mature the ones that he loves. In the parable, had the servants gone and pulled the weeds before harvest time, they would have uprooted the wheat before it was ready to be harvested, and the whole harvest would be for nothing. And so then the Apostle Peter reminds us again in his first letter, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, in this, that is, in, in salvation, in the salvation that we are going to receive perfectly in eternity. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though gold perishes, though it's tested by fire. Your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is working in you, Christian. I know evil in the world hurts. We, we've seen evil on display yet again in Syria earlier this week where a government unleashed uh, sarin gas attacks on their own people. Praise, praise God. Thank God that we are, we are not living in Syria and the subjects of, of those sorts of atrocities. But at the same time, our hearts are grieved by that, by men and women and children being killed in the streets by their own government. Evil hurts. Suffering hurts. But we have to trust that God, who is sovereign over all things, is using those things in the world, in our lives, to make us more like Christ until the day we meet him face to face. He is preparing us through suffering for eternity. Christian, as God is patient with non-believers in this time of waiting and growing, this time of the spreading of the gospel, you be patient with unbelievers also. Patiently pray for your lost friends and family members. That they might know God, that God might touch their hearts, change their hearts to see their sin, to want Christ. And in the same measure, Christian brothers and sisters, allow God to work genuine faith in you as you eagerly anticipate that day of judgment when Christ welcomes you into eternity. When suffering comes, when evil afflicts you, when, when disease and, and sickness and death knock on your door, don't lament that, that God is sending some sort of punishment on you, but know that as you are trusting in Christ, that God is sending things to work faith in you, genuine faith in you. He is preparing you to be ready for an eternity of worship and praise in his presence after this life, 
Embrace suffering with open arms. Don't necessarily seek it, but when it comes, embrace it as a gift of God to help you to trust Christ more. That is a hard word to learn and to apply to our lives and to live out. God help us to do it. But non-Christian friend here today, you who are not a believer, knowing that God is patient, do not take God's patience for granted today. If you are waiting for a particular day or age in life to get religious, when I'm 35, I'll, I'll, I'll get on the right path. As soon as I clean up this, in my, then, I'll, then I'll, you know, I'll, 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 I'll find Jesus. Which, by the way, you don't find him, he finds you. You who are waiting for a particular time in your life to, to, to come into faith, know and understand that you are not promised that that, that, that day will come. You're not promised that particular age. You're not promised that stage in life. The saying, why do today what you can put off till tomorrow, which I employed regularly in college, is not wisdom for your soul. Procrastination when it comes to faith is not good for your soul. It's foolishness. Do not put off knowing Christ and trusting him for one more day. Not one more day, not one more minute. We're not guaranteed the next 60 seconds. Before I'm done speaking, any number of things could happen that that could cause all of us to meet our maker today in this moment. Don't put off Christ. Don't put off trusting Christ another second longer. We see clearly in so many places in God's word that that one man's heart and, and receptivity to the gospel of Jesus cannot be coerced by another man. I can't convince you to trust Jesus. I can't. Bible says I can't. Rather, it's God alone who can change our hardened hearts to see the truth of the gospel, to see the truth of Jesus. So my non-believing friend, ask yourself, is, is God working in your heart and mind today? Is God doing something in you today? Is he moving you this moment? Do you find yourself bothered by your sin? Do you think on the things that you've done that you know are wrong and you're bothered by it? It's the work of the Holy Spirit showing you that you have sin and that it should bother you. It's evidence of, of God working in you to show you that the wages of your sin is not life, but is death. Friend, are you beginning to see the truth that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you beginning, under, beginning to understand what it means that he died in your place and was raised from the dead? Are you beginning to understand, beginning to feel, beginning to sense and discern that the Holy Spirit is leading you to trust him today? Are you? Then by all means, I, I, I implore you, I beg and plead with you, don't neglect the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. If God is calling you today to trust him, don't put it off another moment. In a moment, in a little bit, the, the praise team is going to come. They're going to lead us in a time of, uh, of response, a song of response. And I will be here to meet with you, to pray with you, to counsel with you about how you can know Christ how all the questions about your sin and all, and all of the, just the messed up feelings and stuff that you have in life because of your sin. How God can begin to work and, and renew and restore all of that in you as you come to Christ. As you trust in Jesus, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, physical resurrection from the dead. Don't put off trusting Jesus one day longer because the warning, the, the fate of the one who continues to put that off until the day he dies is what Jesus has already said. It's a place of unimaginable torment. And not because God is mean, not because God is capricious, but because God is just. 
And one offense against an infinitely holy, perfect, loving God is, is an offense of infinite magnitude and an offense deserving infinite and eternal punishment is what we have asked for. Hell is what we choose. Heaven is what God gifts us with as we come to see our need for Christ and place faith in him. Non-believing friend, don't let another moment go by without trusting Jesus. Do it today. Be bold today. Let's pray. And as I do, the praise team's going to come. They're going to.